naming conventions down for the last episode. Yeah. Visco convention down. <laughs> what else? Whiskey and whiskey. Whiskey, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Stewie. We should totally go over red wine versus white wine. <laughs> that would be very short. One is better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we would have to fight about that. No. Although I do owe you my JLOR addiction. I, I officially went down to the local shop to see if I could buy boxes of JLOR wine instead of bottles because at this point I'm going to need to buy them in bulk. Just more efficient, right? Yeah, no, I know. They they don't actually uh, tend to have cases of it available so that sucks. No, which is crap. You can order it through like into the US like you can order them. They've got an American site you can order them but like I'm not sure what duty in that is like to bring them across into, into Canada so I'm kind of nervous about that. Way more than it's worth Right. Yeah, yeah but just... they do have, they've got different kinds like they've got Pinot Noir like you can't get that here. Yeah, I haven't seen the Pinot Noir uh, and if you do have, if you do see it or the Sauvignon Blanc or however you say that, put that in the mail and fire it my way. I'll pay you extra. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't see much outside of the, like I see the Merlot sometimes, but usually it's the Cab Sauve and uh, what else do I see? One of the, the Chardonnay. Whites. Yeah, the Chardonnay. Yeah, the yeah. Chardonnay. That's the one that I'm addicted to. Maybe not addicted. But the Chardonnay, is, isn't that white wine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Guys, it's so good, guys. <laughs> A bottle can easily go down in half an hour. Yeah, that's usually my preferred uh, flavor. Yeah, I mean, for for white wine, it's it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like water. <laughs> well, for what it's worth, uh, I'm drinking red now, so... I'm on Mario's team right now. There you go. So, I mean, aside from wine, Nick, if we have to save our money to buy all these computers, then I guess maybe I have to put the wine aside. Maybe. Well, life's all about priorities. <laughs> what are your priorities? <laughs> what would make you happier? Think about that. What would make you happier in the in the next 30 minutes or so? <laughs> That's how you make computer decisions. <laughs> Think of the next 30 minutes only. <laughs> yeah. So I make mine and I haven't upgraded my, my computer in eight years. So that kind of makes sense. Can we talk about that? Because we, you, you and I, we used to be on the same planet where, you know, we're rocking eight-year-old machines. I just, uh, you know, took a rocket ship into the modern age with a three-year-old machine. You mean a trash can. Yeah, a trash can, exactly. <laughs> um, but you're still on the eight-year-old machine for now. And we're kind of, I, I think we've got a pretty good sense of what Apple's up to in terms of their next round of hardware iterations. We don't know when the next desktop machines are dropping, but yeah. um, has the new laptop news that uh, Josh and I talked about last episode given you anything in terms of a plan or are you still kind of waiting? Well, it has totally messed up with my my existing plans, I would say. Because uh, I, I always used to think that I needed a desktop computer because yeah. I like you know to have a big screen and a powerful machine uh, to do the bulk of my work on for eight hours a day or so. It's just more comfortable, you know. Uh, sometimes I enjoy going out to a cafe or whatever to work elsewhere for one or two or even three days a week, but that's not the the more usual setup for me. I, I enjoy working at my desk. Right, yeah. So I, I, I always thought I would need a desktop uh, Mac uh, to replace my current iMac. Now, for the first time since these machines were announced, I'm starting to doubt that because the the main problem that I have with laptops in general is that I need tons of external storage. And it's just cumbersome to have all those cables plugging into your laptop. And yes, there are docks and all of that. Oh, you and me both, brother. Yeah, it's it's just a mess, right? But these MacBook Pros offer you the possibility to have just one cable and you can plug everything through that single cable, including power. So that's huge right there for me. Also, they are really way more powerful than I need. So it's not a, it's yeah. not about processing power. It's not about uh, cables anymore. Uh, I think the main reason to have a desktop for me right now would still be just because they are more powerful, and that's still the case. But the difference really isn't important anymore, at least for the type of work that I do. Well, and especially especially considering the gap between your existing machine and exactly. the laptops of today like that is still a major computational upgrade even if uh, even if you're going from desktop to laptop like well the, yeah anything's an upgrade from a potato chip right yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah, how you said it the other day <laughs> 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 so Alvaro, uh, like what are you thinking 
Like, are you gonna are you gonna get this new 15 inch or what? I, you know, I just don't know because I do enjoy when when I use my laptop away from my desk. I do enjoy having a smaller form factor. So, basically, my thinking is I could get away with just one 15 inch MacBook Pro, but that would kind of get me not that great portability and and yes, great, awesome performance at my desk, but still not as good as a desktop. So I still think there's there's room for having a powerful desktop and a small laptop. My my main point of concern right now is whether the 13-inch MacBook Pro is powerful enough for me to be my only machine. And I don't think, I think so. It... Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, no. Because I do... I mean, once I get access to that extra power that I, now currently I don't have, I'm going to start pushing it. And Lightroom and you know, Photoshop and, and all, all of these apps are not particularly well optimized. And you can run them on a on an old machine like like I'm doing now, but if you run them on a on a newer machine, they're still gonna hog up resources like crazy. So Lightroom can totally make a brand new computer feel slow, and that's, <laughs> that's the magic of Lightroom. Yeah, I mean, that's a problem, and that's a problem that's not gonna get solved by going with a more powerful machine. I know, but I don't know. It's just it's just a mess. I guess I whatever I do, I'm definitely going to wait until Apple. Uh, upgrades the desktop line, either with by releasing new iMacs or maybe even potentially upgrading the Mac Pro. Yeah, uh, and then I'll decide. And then I'll decide. I am super jealous of your new Mac Pro, by the way. I'm I'm starting to think that might be uh, a machine I would like to own because I see myself like owning two two displays and the little trash can on the side and. I like I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. I mean, I don't have any use for a portable Mac, right? So for right. me, the laptops were never really um, worth considering. Uh, and, and this is like a, a quantum leap forward in horsepower versus my eight-year-old machine, obviously. And, you know, it's dead silent. It's small. It's, uh, I, you know, I've made the transition now to the whole external storage thing, which... Uh, that actually slowed me down in terms of like making this leap um, more than anything else because I I was so used to trying to fit everything into the internal storage. Like I had four hard drives in the previous Mac Pro and I knew, you know, I've known for several years now that storage is going to become an external thing. Right. But um, I, I had to wait for the speeds to get close to what I needed them to be, right? Because before... Uh, Thunderbolt hit the scene, and especially Thunderbolt 2, you couldn't really get the kind of I.O. performance out of external drives that I needed for the music work that I do. Uh, the rest of the stuff was fine. Like I, I could have been totally fine for everything else, but not for the sample streaming part of the music work. So I had to wait for that. And then once that became available, it became a matter of trying to balance the cost of getting that external RAID enclosure and also the new computer. Uh, so it just was waiting for the opportune moment to make that work. And I was in I was in your shoes in terms of wanting to wait for uh, their next generation in terms of announcements, right? Just to see what they were doing, what they were going to um, bring out as the future of desktop Macs. But um, when I ran the numbers, I realized that it doesn't really matter what they bring out because I won't be able to afford it. So there's no right. point in me waiting for it, right? Because it's like, I can't, <laughs> it's not attainable. So why bother? You know, so I the, for for me this made sense, but for you, if you if you're going to be able to get one of the fancy new iMacs, hopefully with a you know Magic Keyboard three with the Touch Bar or whatever it happens to bring to the table, that would be uh, that would be a huge upgrade. Well, what's making me uh, want to wait for new desktops is that whatever my next computer is, I do want it to have Thunderbolt three and USB C. You know, right, and yeah. and and that's something that I think is going to be huge in the next few years. But I think it's got quite a long life ahead of it. Uh, I, I really do think this is going to become the standard for the next 10, potentially even more years. Oh, I hope so. Be it's a hard solid. to say because we went from Thunderbolt 1 to Thunderbolt 3 pretty quickly. So I know. I'm, not quite sure, I'm not quite sure how Thunderbolt 3 is going to fare in terms of launch. I mean, obviously it's all backwards compatible, right? It's, it's just a matter of right. like... Uh, yeah, and and I, for me, I think that the um, like I was saying, the Thunderbolt two data throughput allows for fast enough read and write speeds that it it's totally like it's faster than my internal solid state drives used to be. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm I'm not meaning I I don't mean the specs or the performance or whatever. I'm sure 
there will be a Thunderbolt 4, 5, 6, whatever. Uh, what, what I'm talking about is that for the first time, we have a data protocol and a physical port that is basically universal. You only need this type of port for all your needs. Yeah. You can get pretty much every signal that, you can, that your computer can handle through that port. And that's what I want. If there's a new spec two or three years from now that builds upon that and makes it even faster and better, then perfect. That's awesome. But I would hope if they keep the same, the same physical port, then all my devices will continue to work. They will not work, of course, as fast um, as the new spec, but, but they will still work. Yeah. What I'm worried about with Thunderbolt 2 is that you still have basically two different connections. The, the display port that handles everything, and the Mac Pro still has USB Type-A, right? The, the regular USB connector. Yep, it's got four of those. So you have that, th those two ports, and I'm worried, uh, I worry a little bit that if USB-C and Thunderbolt 3 become super popular, then all peripheral uh, makers will basically just use that in their devices. And maybe five years from now, it will be impossible to buy a hard drive with a Thunderbolt 2 connector. I think it'll only be five years from now that that becomes a problem. You yeah. Know, four, four or five years, because this kind of thing moves slowly. As much as Apple would love to accelerate it, and as much as their aggressive removal of ports and things on the new MacBook Pros will serve to accelerate it, uh, ultimately, this is still a slow transition. There's still a lot of people who cannot, you know, they're stuck mid-upgrade cycle or something, so they're not going to be updating. Yeah. They're still going to need the old. So it's, it, you know, it's a process. And I think um, if your goal is to keep the machine for another eight years or something like that, then then yes, of course, that's a concern. You're going to want to do whatever you can to future-proof. But on the other hand, the reality is that in computing terms, eight years is a vast amount of time and it's very likely that no matter like even if if thunderbolt 3 is there that's only buying you a little bit of extra time right uh, versus whatever will come out next right so it's it's hard to plan for that level of uh of of computing lifespan honestly and that's kind of a, a frustrating thing because it used to be a little more predictable a little more straightforward but nowadays you just can't know yeah that's true that's true but the, the for me the point of friction is that yeah i i just don't want to buy a machine unless it's my only machine. I, I think I'm past the point where I want to have two Macs. Yeah. Like the, I think we've reached the point where one machine can be enough because the, the the power is there, the portability is there. If you if you go for a laptop, obviously. If I buy a desktop, then I'm stuck with the two machine setup, and that's I'm not really crazy about that. So yeah, it's a mess. I, I really don't know what I'm gonna do, basically, but. I like the laptops. I like the new laptops. I'm not crazy about the touch bar, by the way. I think it's it, it remains to be seen whether that will be actually useful in the long term or not. But uh, everywhere else, these machines are great. Yeah. Josh, you're buying one, right? I don't know. Yeah, probably. Probably going to get one. Probably. I, it, I do still think it's the best fit for your particular needs right now. I think so. I think so. I'm a little hesitant with how big it is. I got to play around with one recently. Like not one, one of the new ones, but like a 15 inch. And I forgot how big 15 inches is. Like it's huge. Right. These ones are significantly smaller though. Right, right, right. That's a good point. But it's still like still a 15 inch screen. So um, that'll be good. But then again, like I'm sitting in front of an iMac right now as I speak and I just go, oh, I love how big that screen is. So I don't know, like it's kind of like this Apple Watch thing that I'm doing like Right. Just, you know, hit the return button on it today. And I've been so like, I don't know, like back and forth. Like, do I keep it? Do I not keep it? Oh, Apple. It's so stressful. <laughs> you know what I love about the Mac Pro, though, is that it absolutely cures you of any jealousy. It's like new MacBook Pros, whatever. I have my supercomputer right here. I don't need anything else. Right, right. My $11,000 machine <laughs> with 16 cores and 128 gigs of RAM and a display that still isn't 5K. <laughs> well, For the record, right? I did not spend $11,000 on okay, it. I, well. I would have if I'd maxed it out and bought it new and everything, but <laughs> not quite. Uh, but yeah, no, I Alvaro's right. I, I'm no longer uh, feeling that awful uh Gassiness. Gas. Yeah. Gassiness. Yeah. <laughs> Gear acquisition syndrome. Yeah, no, I'm I'm fine now because honestly, this this machine is so much of an improvement, even though it's three years old. Um, and I always stop and I like I, I have to remind myself that all of the work that I've done up to this point was done on that eight-year-old machine. So if I'm able to improve on that performance, then we're we're fine. Like I really have bought myself 
a comfortable amount of time. I don't expect that my workflow is going to suddenly require a huge leap forward in in computing horsepower. So, right. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've talked about computers out of our yin yang again for another few minutes, you don't know why I've been thinking about this light, this thing is because I've spent an in inordinate amount of time in Lightroom over the last few weeks right. playing around with a new like set of toys that I bought. And I've noticed how like brutally slow eight gigabytes of RAM and a three-year-old iMac can be, let alone an eight-year-old Mac Pro. But that's why a lot of this computer crap came up because I've been in Lightroom so much. And it's got it's all thanks to like our main topic. Which is Lightroom presets. Lightroom presets. It's like it's like what made photography popular. Yeah. I no, right? I'm not giving them credit for that. No. <laughs> Visco is like it's like the definition of modern day photography trends and fast. I think that's and Instagram more than Visco, but whatever. Yeah, I blame I blame Instagram. Okay. Blame yeah, okay, okay. Fair, fair. Okay. Chicken before the egg, whatever. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. There you go. But in any event, we do have uh I, I think we've we've talked a little bit about presets before in the context of film emulation, but uh we kind of want to talk about them from a different angle today. And this is something that I know definitely applies to me, but I look at well-crafted presets as a source of learning because I like to think that I'm decent at, you know, wielding Lightroom and Photoshop and all these image editing tools. I kind of, I know what the things do, but it's always amazing to see true masters um, and, and sort of unpack how they approach creating a preset or how they approach editing an image. And I think that's why we even see so many really great like ed- image editing live streams that are that are quite popular and that's exactly why right because you watch it and you're like oh I-, I knew about that tool but i didn't know that you could use it to produce this effect or oh i've always loved that particular look i i i've never known how it's done this dude just showed me or this preset has that look and i can look into what produces it and and learn and apply it and yeah it's it's good i like them yeah Couldn't agree so more. do i those are absolutely great tools to learn. And I, what I find compelling about them is that they are useful regardless of your experience level. If you're a beginner and you're just getting started and learning about how to tweak your pictures, presets can show you the end result of various actions, as you just said. And if you're an advanced uh, professional, they are basically shortcuts to getting the look that you want out of your images. So if you have a workflow for your particular style, you can just create a preset and you hit one click and you get probably 80% of the way there. You still have, of course, to adjust and, and do minor tweaks after that because every image is different. But they are they are very useful for all kinds of photographers, not just as educational tools or as post-processing uh, shortcuts. They can do both. And that's, I think, some great usability right there. So... The there's a, a few big ones, right? Like, like we just said, like Instagram was probably the big, probably the first big set where like presets came in, correct? And those would you would argue would probably just be like probably shortcuts to a specific look, right? I, I can't imagine Instagram taught people all that much about editing photos. Would you guys agree? They were very heavy handed. Yeah. It's, yeah. It wasn't so much yeah. like, the, especially the original ones, they were very much character things. It wasn't really about a subtle look or improvement or anything. It was like, we are going to take your photo and make it look like it came out of a Polaroid camera. 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. And actually cool. they were never intended as educational tools because you apply the preset, but you don't know what the preset is doing behind the scenes. You have no right. idea of learning right. anything about that look other than you like it or you don't. So it's just maybe the, it's educating your aesthetic sense, but it's not teaching you how to edit your pictures, basically. Right. And then from there, like Visco, they've got uh, a lot of people use Visco's presets in Instagram now, right? But it, it started in and on the desktop, right. like in a computer format, correct? Like, so would you say that those would be kind of the next most popular ones? Oh, yeah, easily. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Would they be more popular than Instagram? I, it could be. Um, probably not. They would be even more popular if they sponsored the show, but. 
<laughs> Good plug. I like it. Yeah, no, I don't think so because Instagram is just, it has such a vast um, user base at this point that it's its difficult to uh, compete with that in terms of the filters. And a lot of people just don't, um, don't know about Visco on the same scale. Like I think it's, even though it's very popular, it might be uh, a, a bit more of a niche thing. Oh, yeah. Um, for a lot of people. So it's it's hard to compare the two, but I, I would say that uh, those two are definitely the most popular platforms or or um, environments for uh, for presets. Yeah, I mean, Visco is probably the most popular tool for those people who do their edits in Lightroom. Like if you edit your yeah. pictures in Lightroom and then export to Instagram, you're way more likely to use Visco than anything else. If you want to edit on your phone, then of course not. Of course, you you just open Instagram, fire the app, apply whatever presets you like, and off you go. And I don't know about the Visco app for the phone, by the way. I've tried it and never really clicked for me. So See, I'm, the, yeah. I'm the total opposite. I actually prefer a lot of the um, looks in the Visco app than the ones that are actually in like their Lightroom preset catalog. I don't know why, but I just have an easier time getting to the look that I'm after with the app. So it's always been a frustration to me that you can't, like they don't actually have the equivalent for the app presets in the Lightroom presets, right? Like the A1 or the whatever. Like if they if they release that set, I think I would be much happier, especially because again, in the app, it's kind of abstracted away from you. Like you don't actually know what adjustments are being made. You can visually kind of try and deconstruct it if your eyes is very... Uh, you know, trained, you can look at it and you can say, okay, well, clearly they're shifting the hue of this and maybe the blacks are being lifted and maybe something, something, but you don't have the same hands-on um, way of looking at it as you do in Lightroom. So I do, I still wish that Visco would bring out a one-to-one -one pack that just brings all of their mobile filters into Lightroom so that we can access them that way. Or even just make a Mac app, right? Like if you want to not be in Lightroom, just do that instead. Prime did it. And that would know. make way more sense. And it would probably be less effort to, because if they yeah. already have the iPhone app, then it's, I mean, it's not trivial, but it's fairly easy to create a Mac app starting from that code base. And you, and you I would port think it so, right? Like I, yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. The thing yeah. is that in, in in Lightroom, the preset packs that they're selling, they're heavily playing the angle of film. And that's not what they do in the app. That's true. Visco Film seeks to emulate specific film stocks from different ages and different film types and whatever. But they're after yeah. some form of accuracy. They're not really that accurate when, when you stop to look at them. But they they do capture the character of different films. And that's the point after all because if you don't have a film shot to compare it to then you don't care about accuracy that much yeah i always felt that they were super like yeah yeah heavy and the problem for me when i'm using uh, visco film in lightroom and i think that's that may be part of what's bugging you about them marius is that there are just so darn many of them that oh. it's very very challenging to choose one and some of them are nearly identical to the to to others. It's like it's splitting hairs at that point. Do I apply? I don't know, Portra four hundred or Portra eight hundred? Yeah, one is a plus, little plus, bit plus minus minus. Yeah, of course. <laughs> One's a little bit more contrasty. The other one has a little bit more grain. Whatever. It's really it's really the the difference is not that meaningful. So when you're trying to choose one, you're overwhelmed by this sheer amount of, of choices. And sometimes it defeats the purpose because what you want is an easy, uh, an easy workflow that you just click and forget. And when you have so many options, you can't do that really. You have to, you have to devote some time and effort to learn how each preset looks like. And, 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 and you know, at, at that point, you might as well be learning to do the edits yourself. Yeah. Did you guys know, um, I mean, I, I knew this, but there's also like, Visco used to sell like this keys program or something like that, which was just keyboard shortcuts, right? Right. Something like that. You guys heard of this before? Yeah, that was some sort of like macro command thing for Lightroom, wasn't it? I never used it. Yeah, and you were supposed to be able to like just fly through, like I think it just made short work of a bunch of major workflows inside of Lightroom, I believe. But I just like looked it up like as we speak and it's actually free. They've gone and made it open source. Yeah, they right. did that last year or earlier this year or something like I, that. I didn't hear about that. I'm going to yeah. try it. 
Yeah, you may as well. I mean, it's one of those things that in theory improves your workload because you can do a workflow rather because you can do uh, like a very keyboard heavy approach to culling images and, you know, getting through a, a series. Oh, which- screw it. I'm going to have the touch bar soon. Who needs Visco keys? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so uh, are there any others like I think there was a new app that came out recently that I saw um, specifically Ben Brooks's wife was using. I think, was it Filmborn? Is that right? Yeah. She had a couple photos of her, of her daughters on Instagram. Once again, like, wow, her photography is so good. Um, but yeah, they were Filmborn ones. You guys were playing around with them. We were. So uh, in the, in the realm of like emulating specific film stocks um, besides Visco, there is a company called Mastin Labs, which Uh, is well known for, uh, like, this is their focus. And they're actually interesting because they have a much narrower scope of film stocks that they try to emulate because their goal is not actually to have you replace film in your shooting. Their goal is to make emulations that are good enough that photographers who shoot both film and digital can actually match the look of their digital photos to their film ones so that, for example, if you're going to shoot a wedding, you can take both cameras and deliver a set of images and not have this glaring discrepancy between the ones that were shot on your digital setup and the ones that were shot on film. So that's that's a totally different um, way of approaching this emulation thing. And it, it kind of, I think it explains why their emulations are widely considered to be um, the most accurate in terms of actually looking like the film, not necessarily looking um, amazing or very uh, hip or punchy or whatever, but actually looking like the film stocks that they emulate. Um, so for me, that's a pretty that's a pretty interesting differentiation. It makes it, I think, a little less um, like the the appeal is less broad, right? I mean, I guess I suppose if you're looking for accurate emulations, but you only shoot digital then it's it's obviously a great option. But because you're getting fewer film stocks, because you're getting um, a less evident look in a lot of ways, like it's they tend not to be as obvious as the Visco presets. So depending on what your needs are, you may or may not like that. Um, I have really enjoyed most of the sample images that I've seen from their stuff. And the Filmborn oh, app- Oh, their main landing page is incredible. Yeah. A few of these yeah. photos, yeah. wow. The Filmborn app is pretty impressive. I've been playing with it for the past few days. Um, we we actually hope to get them on the show to chat about it, but the scheduling didn't really work out. Um, so we didn't, we were supposed to have early access to the app, but we only got it recently. Um, but it's it's been really, like, I, I have to admit that I was not blown away by the color presets so far. But there are three black and white profiles in here that are blowing my mind. I, I they're so so good, and uh, I was showing you guys some some like just very quick examples. But these are really really nice. Like they're among the best black and white emulations that I've seen. Um, period. And the fact that they're coming from an iPhone app is uh, is pretty great. Yeah, that was the most surprising thing for me. That it's just how accurate they've managed to get, and still everything is happening on the phone. So that's. It's mind blowing, and because they go after accuracy, I think it's that's worth praising because it's a technically a lot harder achievement. I think because you have a lot a, a, a lot stricter rules. Like you, you have to first of all, you have to scan the film, and you have to determine what the canonical look for each film stock is, and that by itself, I'm telling you as someone who shoots film myself, that by itself is no small feat. Like. You can take two shots of the same film, shot in very similar lighting conditions, scan them with a very similar workflow, and still end up with two totally different results by the time you're done. So just being able to scientifically measure and determine the the response of of a given film stock, that right there is a a lot of work. Yeah. For for someone like me who doesn't shoot film, I think that um, part part of what surprised me is that these look so great and i'm not like to me i'm not delighted by them because they remind me of the film because i'm not familiar with the film i'm they just look great and they look um they have depth to them and they they've got a great uh way of uh, displaying tonality in black and white um and the gradients are very like it's just it's a very appealing look and the, the fact that it's also accurate is amazing but i think i've mentioned this on some other episodes as well like for for me a preset is not good or bad because it's accurate to the film like i'm after the character behind it 
And I think these ones definitely nailed that aspect. Was it the Ilford Ilford pack, by the way, the black and white? Yeah. Ilford? Yeah. I'll, that's one? Okay. Yeah, yep, I'm yep. just looking at them right now. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Ilford really is nice. really the main uh, black and white film manufacturer that remains producing film, uh, professional grade film today. So they are pretty much the, the only one left. Yeah, the only way you can tell these these examples apart is like by the sharpness and, and like the clarity of the image. You know, right. like the older film ones are just not as sharp, plain and simple. Yeah. Well, for me, the difference is more in the way they they erase the blacks, depending on which film you're using. The contrast curve is very different from one to the other. But yeah, all three are very compelling. I agree. And the the what I see with Filmborn and Mastin Labs in general in all of their products is that they are targeted at film photographers. So yes, people who don't shoot film will still find them appealing because, well, film has that look and, and, and it, it's a look that many people love and that's why it became a trend in the first place. But you don't go to that le- those lengths just to create a look that people find appealing. There are a lot easier ways to do that and that's what Visco did or many other preset pack apps do. If your ultimate goal is accuracy, is because your target audience is made up of people who know and shoot film regularly. And like Mario said, the ultimate goal is to be able to mix film and digital shots and not be not being able to tell the difference between them, basically. That is, if, if they manage to nail that, that's that's pretty much all you could want in an app like this. Yeah. Uh, Josh, though, you've been playing with a totally different set of presets and you introduced us to these because I had not heard of them before. So tell us, tell us what you found. Hey, for once, for once, I bring something new to the show. Can you guys believe this? Wow. Just want to take this for a second, put this little feather in the back (laughs) of my cap. All right. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I was, uh, just on Twitter the other day and one of a couple of my favorite photographers, uh, that I follow online were, um, basically talking about Rebecca Lilly's Pro Set 4. She recently released the uh, fourth uh, preset package uh, of her own that basically she works full-time on her own and takes years at a time to develop a package of presets for Lightroom and um, for, I think, Lightroom and ACR 8 and 9. So um, anyway, for Lightroom and Adobe Camera Raw. Um, and so anyway, she's basically got uh, a set of 36 presets in Pro Set 4, which um, I think she models them after some uh, older film or or some some types of film. Um, But I don't think that they're as specifically set on emulating film as Filmborn or Visco uh, as those other ones. She's mostly going for a specific, I would say like a specific look of some sort. I would say that the look is a little more trendy. Um, there's a little bit, I think the changes between the presets are a lot more subtle than what you find in, in Visco. Um, yeah. And, and I, you know, there's a wide range. She's got some black and whites. She's got a couple indoor presets where the contrast is lowered a lot and it brings out a lot more light indoor for indoor shots. She's got some pastel colors, uh, vintage colors. They get to wide range. Um, and then this is again, the, the fourth package. So she's got a, a wide range of older presets that you can purchase as well. The latest, um, took, I think two or three years for her to develop, uh, along with the purchase thing comes a bunch of like tools that are, they go into Lightroom's area, like the preset area, but they're, they're more subtle tools as opposed to going into the right side of Lightroom and, you know, using all the sliders to make adjustments, you would just click on a button on the left side and it would add her idea of like uh, different vignetting settings or grain or, or so on. So anyway, all I'm trying to get at is that they're not necessarily, I I think that they definitely have a film emulation thought in mind, but they're not like dedicated to that specifically. And they're more dedicated to a specific look um, and color. And in fact, she even sells like a, a customized color grading. If you want, like you can hire her to develop your own color as opposed to film look if that makes sense yeah it does it does i'm looking at her website right now and you are correct in stating that they are definitely uh not specific film looks that she's emulating or anything like that although there is that vibe going on 
I mean, the, the right, cars. Right, especially with the vintage ones. Yeah, they are very reminiscent of, of film, but probably not based on actual film stock. So that's okay. That's, no, that's, I think her husband, I think, is a big time uh, film photographer. Right. A big time. I don't know like if he's professional, but I think that he shoots a lot of films. So there's been a lot of his input uh, on these as well. So there will for sure be a film portion of it, but... Yeah, I, I have to admit, for me, this kind of preset pack is a lot more appealing because, again, not being concerned with emulating a specific film, for me, it's very cool to see how someone who who clearly has a lot of experience with shooting film has been able to pinpoint what it is about certain film stocks or combinations of film stocks that, um, like what it is about the way they influence the look of an image that is so appealing and that contributes to the trend that we see today of, of trying to recapture some of that analog magic. And the fact that she has the freedom to explore that landscape without being beholden to a specific set of limitations imposed by one or more film emulations makes it much more exciting because it means she's able to like invent her own variations and she can take what's great about one film stock and combine it with what's great about another one without the like heavy grain for example or you know whatever whatever the case may be she's got a lot of freedom to develop something that is really focused on aesthetic excellence instead of uh, technical accuracy. And I think that's a very important distinction and one that, again, for, for me, it's just much more appealing as a starting point. Like, I, I don't care if a photo that I take ends up looking like it was shot on Portra 400. Why do I care? Why does anyone care? I don't know. I'm the same way. I have no I idea. Yeah. But yeah. but if I can take the, um, or if I can use a preset that helps me capture some of the subtleties of that film in combination with some of the Kodak films or, so, you know, whatever the case may be, to infuse a certain personality into my image that I would otherwise not know how to do, that's great. And of course, my goal again for for these presets and sort of the topic that we're circling around here is the way that these presets help you learn what exactly that look entails. Because my, it's fun, right? You you open an image and you flip through the presets and you're like, oh my god, so many different moods are encompassed in this one single image. And then you look at the right side of Lightroom, if you're like me, and you're like, okay, what the hell did she do? What is she doing to my image? How did she get this, right? And then you start to learn and you start to improve. And then the next time, it's not so much about picking a preset and just sort of browsing around idly. You you begin to have a better understanding of what she's doing, what the presets represent in terms of starting points. And then they become just starting points, right? You're like, I know that I'm taking this image in this direction and it becomes more of an intentional process instead of just kind of flipping through presets and being like, well, we'll just wait until something sticks. You go right to the ones that you know. You're like, okay, I know that I'm after a slightly warmer tonality. I know that I'm after the lifted blacks. I know that I'm after whatever. I know that her preset that's called whatever gets me into that ballpark. And then from there I can make my own adjustments because again, I will have learned what adjustments she made for that preset. And I know how to adjust them to get um, the individual variation that makes sense for my image. So I, like, I can't really put it in better words than what you have here so far, but I think for these Rebecca Lilly presets, first off, like I got to say that these presets, I came across them, like I said, maybe three weeks to a month ago and I've never bought something so fast, like mm-hmm. without thinking about it. I saw these these samples and I went, holy crap, I got to have these. I got to try this out because it was exactly the look that I've been trying to nail down for like ever since I even bought my first camera. This is what I've been trying to do and I got tired of waiting and, and she can just do it with, you know, one click. Now, what I really realized though is like, you know, I always thought that a skin tone, like nailing a skin tone in a, in a photo was more about like white balance or lighting or whatever. But like when you, when you click on one of hers, like she, uh, there's a specific, there's two specific ones, which are great for portraiture. She, um, she recommends one called green tea, which I agree. It's, it's, it's a little bit cooler, a little greener. Um, and then there's another one called vineyard, which is a little more yellow, uh, softer. Anyway, they're really, really good when it comes to skin tones. And then you take a look on the right side of Lightroom and I, you know, I looked at my old preset of what I thought I was trying to get at. And then I looked at hers and I realized like how far I was off. Mm-hmm. It wasn't anything about white balance. It was more about like the literal, the combination of colors in her, in the color grading 
portion like the split right no sorry right split tone yeah, in, in the color oh, no, not right. split tone and, yeah, and all yeah. that like she's got that nailed down to the point where like i would have never been able to find any of this stuff and now now that i know that that's how it goes well like now i know that i can go and change this ever so slightly to get this kind of look or and so on so anyway i want to kind of like pass on a little bit of like thank you to rebecca if she ever does listen to this because it's a reignited a pile of inspiration for me in my own photography but it's it served to teach me like, hey, I was looking in the entirely wrong spot when I was trying to shoot a portrait. Well, there you go. Yeah. And you know what? This kind of leads me to one of the things that I find frustrating about Lightroom presets in general. Uh, and that's the fact that they're Lightroom presets. Um, because, <laughs> because, for example, when you talk about skin tones, it's not really debatable, I don't think, that Capture One provides much better tools for working with skin tones specifically like for, for portraiture retouching capture one is just a better environment than lightroom full stop so it's kind of annoying when the presets that you like to get the looks that you're after exist as you know one click things only in lightroom because it means that if i like that look but i want to you know use the power of capture one for portrait editing i can't really do it unless i recreate her presets in capture one somehow and then resave them. And it, like, there's just no, um, and, and this is not really a, a solvable problem. It's just me whining because it's not like anyone is going to agree to a universal <laughs> preset format that works across, you know, all these raw development platforms. But it's just one of those things where you really start to feel the lock-in um, and, right. and it becomes more difficult to leave Lightroom, even if other tools are better in a lot of ways for uh, whatever it happens to be that you're doing. Um, so that's that's frustrating. I suppose the, the counterpoint to that is that, of course, her presets also work for or Adobe Camera Raw. So there's nothing stopping you from importing the raw, processing it using her uh, preset in ACR, and then right. taking the output image into Capture One for further refinement. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I think it goes to show uh, about the importance of having a massive user base as, as Lightroom does. Because the only reason uh, these presets are made for Lightroom is because it's the most popular app by far. But pretty much everyone seems to be of the opinion, myself included, that Adobe's raw developer software is not even close to being the best out there. Like they're, the, the way they handle color from the different sensors out there in, in the most popular cameras is really not that great. <coughs> Fuji. Yeah, for example, <laughs> Fuji. But not just Fuji. I mean, every every camera manufacturer out there, you, you only have to... It, for listeners who are not uh, familiar with this, in Lightroom, you can actually change the camera profile that Lightroom uses to interpret the colors from your sensor. So if you don't do anything, the default is the Adobe standard uh, profile. That's what Lightroom considers the canonical look for your camera and your sensor. But if you, get, if you want, usually manufacturers embed their own profiles within the raw files. So you can actually choose those instead. And those are typically prefixed by the word camera. So you have, for example, if, if you go to camera, I think it's camera calibration or, yep. yeah, there's a, uh, let me open Lightroom just to make sure I say the right term. I think it's yeah, basically you'll see a drop down where it yeah. says Adobe standard and that you'll, you'll see like for Olympus, it's like camera, natural camera, monotone camera, exactly. uh, neutral or whatever. And for Fuji, you'll, that's where you'll see the Lightroom recreated, um, Acros and, uh, Velvia and all those. Exactly. So if you change that to something that starts with camera, you're going to get your own manufacturer's, uh, interpretation of what the picture should look, should look like in theory. But of course, that's still going through Lightroom's engine. So the output is still somewhat murky, I would say. Other applications like Adobe, like uh, Capture One Pro and, and have different algorithms to interpret that data. And the result is usually better or I would say more accurate or more true to life than what Lightroom puts out. But because Lightroom is by far the most popular app, everybody who is making presets, they always prioritize Lightroom because that's where the money is, I guess. So, yeah, it's just a good business. Yeah. So, what are you guys' thoughts on? Uh, you never, you never want to say to people like, <clears throat> "Oh no, these presets are way too expensive." But at the end of the day, like these preset packages cost money. So, yep. you know, Rebecca Lilies are 120 US dollars, 
And you can buy some packages, I believe, in their iOS app for a couple bucks, right? Hmm. So I, I imagine that there's going to be a huge barrier there for a whole pile of people, you know, free free presets versus paid presets. Um, I, I can't, in my head right now, like I can't necessarily come up with an argument that would say, like, there's no way I would ever say that they're too expensive because, right. you know, even if, if you're a professional, $120, that that is a company, you're going to get a combination of value there. You're going to get like shortcuts, which save you a pile of time. You're going to get a new look or consistent look, which saves you again, a pile of time and, you know, helps you develop a brand. But like, even as a learning tool, like how many people jump from, you know, 1.8 to 1.4 lenses, spend $500, probably me. (laughs) And, you know, like this is a way, way, way better spending of money. I would say in the photography realm for again, shortcuts, branding, consistency, and as a learning tool. Uh, well, yeah, yes and no. I'm not sure I agree with that. Because which part? Well, all of it, really. Because the the thing that people tend to do when they're when they release preset packs out into the world for people to buy them, uh, yes, they are expensive. But the way that they tend to justify the cost is by offering you just like. A lot of options. Like you get 40, 50, 60 presets for your money. Right. I'm not sure there's much value in that. I think that might be not the best approach because you can find great presets for just about any amount of money that you can think. There are people who sell individual presets. There are free presets. There are packs of 10 presets, 20, 60, 40, whatever. Whatever you want, you can probably find it. And I'm not sure... There's a an argument to be made that one is better than the other. They are just different looks. So one might be closer to your preferred aesthetic, but at the end of the day, they are all pretty much the same thing. Or they're just they're just applying different uh, edits to your pictures. And I'm not sure what I would prefer. I'm not sure I would prefer paying 120 euros, for example, for one of Rebecca Lilly's preset packs. Uh, and get 80 presets of which maybe I'll enjoy half, maybe I'll be fascinated by 10, and maybe two will become absolute staples in my editing workflow. It, It just seems like a very inefficient way to go about things. But the problem there is you cannot charge a decent amount of money unless you give something in return for that money. And the way these people have learned to justify the cost is by offering more and more presets as opposed to just saying, look, this is what it costs. You're going to get your money's worth, trust me, but I don't know that, that there's a need for going with quantity over just, you know. Right. Quantity versus quality. I, I think I would agree with that. Um, fortunately, like this preset pack has 36 presets, eight of which I think eight are black and white or like Sapia, or however you call that, whatever you yeah. said. And then there's like three or four that are more, a little more vintage. Um, so like it, that helps you narrow it down. And I, I, I think that you've hit the nail on the head. Like, I think that's probably my, one of my favorite parts about this, my, this purchase is the fact that like, yeah, I, I, there's only, um, like I said, about 20 of them that you can roll through and they're different enough that they apply, you know, to different styles of images. And then within each of those presets, like there's just, um, the, the depth of the effect, like there's like different levels of the same effect. Anyway, right. long story short is I, I really do appreciate the fact that there's so there, there's fewer of them. And I, I actually wouldn't even recommend buying all four of hers. Like that would be, I think that would be overboard. Pick one that you think has the most that you might like, and then, and then go from there. Right. Yeah, Mario, I think that's quiet. I, I think that's reasonable. No, I you know what I was thinking when I look at the purchase of a preset pack like Rebecca Lilly's, I'm not looking at the cost as you know buying a certain quantity of presets. I'm buying her expertise and $120 like if I don't make that back in a small portion of one single professional project, I'm not doing very well as a professional right. photographer. So to me, the, the question is not so much, you know, am I getting my money's worth in terms of quantity? It's like, do I, am I sufficiently convinced that this person's mastery of Lightroom is superior to my own 
to a degree that allows me to learn from their presets. And whether there are 10 presets or 100 presets is not really that relevant because to me, it's all just part of this learning environment. And something like a Visco pack, like you were saying, Alvaro, it does tend to come off as overwhelming in terms of, uh, you know, using it as a as a set of options. It's like the, the whole grocery store thing where you go and there's like a million versions of each thing. What do you, what do you choose, right? But um, for, for those of us who are looking at preset packs as more of a learning tool, it's not so big a problem to have have that many of them because realistically in an ideal world at least you prune them right like you go through right. them the one time you learn from them and then you say okay well these are all variations on the one theme i don't need seven of these so delete the rest these are all looks that just don't apply to my photography so they're gone Ooh. and what you're left with is the core <laughs> is the core uh set and or or not i mean you can leave them in there it doesn't matter but my my thinking is that the value has to be demonstrated by uh, by the person's expertise. And in the case of Rebecca Lilly, like it's obviously there. She knows what she's doing. These are really, really sophisticated. And um, I, her, her aesthetic sense is, I think, on point, right? Like, yes, there are lots of free presets out there, but in my experience, at least, you tend to get what you pay for um, in terms of them being very, like the scope of photographs on which these cheap or free presets work tends to be narrower because they're purpose-built for a particular kind of photo and they're not really extensively tested on other things. So when you feed them a wider variety of photographic content, they tend to fall apart more quickly than these professionally designed presets, which are more thoroughly tested, which are designed to be able to react better to a variety of different photographic content. And I think that's worth paying for. Like right. to, to me, that's why I agree with Josh. Like this is not an exorbitant amount of money. If people started charging like $200 and giving me 10 presets, I'd be a little frustrated, but it's not, you know, like we're, we're far from that at this point. Right. I agree with you. I, I, I didn't mean to say that I need quantity to make up for the amount of money that I paid. I meant the exact opposite. I think I don't need you to overwhelm me with so many options when what I'm after is exactly what you said, your expertise. I want your your interpretation of what an image should look like, and I don't need 80 yeah. different options to get that. So absolutely, yeah. I'm of the opinion that she doesn't need to offer that many options to charge the amount that she does. I think there's legitimate value in there, and maybe I didn't express it clearly enough, but that's that's the point I was trying to make, absolutely. But I don't agree with what you said, that there aren't options out there that are cheaper that work just as well or on 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 just as a narrow scope of images i think you guys are underestimating the amount of creativity and generosity that some photographers are putting up there and just to mention one i'm a big fan of a photographer by the name of kaylee june she has uh she's she's australian she has a youtube channel where she does step-by-step -step editing of many pictures. She's a fashion and portrait photographer. And she has a color uh, signature look. I, I really like the way she she handles these edits. She has a very subtle look, but it's it's very distinct. It's You can clearly tell she adds a lot of character to her images. And she just does it and gives it away for free. I'm not saying, of course, that's the way. I'm not saying it's not legitimate to sell these presets because I, I do think it is. I'm just saying that some people out there are doing the work and are putting it out there for the benefit of the community. And if what you want is to learn, you don't need to spend $120 to, to, to do that. Right. No, and that's that's fair. I, all I was saying that is that in my experience, I have not run into those. So I, I'm guaranteed they're out there. It's not like I've looked that much for them. I just haven't come across them. So with your recommendation, which we should toss into the show notes, um, your point is well taken. There are resources out there in the form of free presets that you can use to begin this learning process and to get the same kinds of value. And if it just so happens that these free presets encompass the aesthetic look that you're after, then it's perfect because you don't even have to bother buying a preset pack for any amount of money because it's you know once you've learned it you're you're good to go right but it's not even the presets she does have presets that she gives away for free but the the what i find most compelling about this is that she actually takes you step by step through the editing of the picture even better like she starts with a raw image and she says this is the final result this is the raw image let's see how i got there and she takes you all the way through the process in a YouTube nice. screencast. And I think that's a great way to learn. If what we're after is a better educational tool, I think this is 
uh, more useful approach. Yeah, for sure. Agreed. I very, I couldn't agree more. I, in fact, to be honest, now I'm, I'm, I'm currently on YouTube looking at things, really sap tapping my internet capacity by talking to you guys on Skype <laughs> and downloading videos at the same time. <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks. There's another money or money. Uh, I should say time hog. Thanks. All real. Appreciate it. My pleasure. It's <laughs> what I do really. <laughs> For what it's worth, I've now been looking at ProSet 3, ProSet 2, and ProSet 1 from Rebecca Lilly, and I'm realizing I might uh, have to buy another package. <laughs> Which one? There's, well, I, I don't know. That's the hard part. There's, It's exactly like you said before, like each preset package, whether it's Visco, whether it's Filmborn, like whatever, there's like one or two that catch your eye, and those are the ones that you want. And then all the other ones come with it. Like I've found a few here, like uh, um, there's one called Mid-Color Rio in Pro Set 3. That's, I'd love to try that one. Um, so I might wait a little longer and use the Pro Set 4 a little longer. But long story short is uh, I, I would attest to what you said there earlier about how there's one or two that catch your eye and then the rest is filler generally. Well, yeah, for, for you in particular, right? Whereas for me, it might be a totally different one that I'm like, oh my God, that, I must learn how she did this. And then right. the rest of them are not as interesting. So, yeah. Same thing with this Kaylee June. Like, holy smoke, is this stuff nice? Yeah, it's pretty good. She does tend to edit in Photoshop more often than in Lightroom, which I find interesting, interesting because she she usually applies like color casts to her images and blends different color layers on top of each other. And it's it's a very interesting look. And then the effect is, I really like it. And of course, these are applied on single images, right? So you can't necessarily extrapolate from that example to a different one, but you do learn a lot to, to, that every step you take, you immediately see the impact it has on the image. And that's great, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually getting to the point where I'm beginning to contemplate switching my, my, like the bulk of my editing from Lightroom to Photoshop, like keep using Lightroom right. as a cataloging software, but, um, start doing the editing in Photoshop because the more I, the more I learn and the more I work with Photoshop, the more I realize that, um, it is a more powerful environment for doing a lot of these kinds of things that you can kind of replicate or do partially in Lightroom, but you don't really get the amount of control that you have in Photoshop. And I think that um, as I learn more about what goes into these, like the photographers whose work I really appreciate and whose, um, I guess, look is something that I try to learn about, I'm realizing that a lot of them work in Photoshop and there's probably a reason for that. And um, it, like in, in cases like this, where, you know, like Kaylee June is doing um, these walkthrough videos, you kind of, you understand what goes into an edit like that. And there's a lot more um, than you can often accomplish in Lightroom. And I'm okay with that. Like, I, I know there's a bit of a, uh, an inconvenience in terms of the workflow because you're no longer, um, everything's no longer in the same environment, but because the round trip between those two apps is so seamless, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, if it means that long-term I'm getting better results. So that's something that I'm kind of playing with right now is, is trying to figure out if that is going to make sense for me, or if I'm just too frustrated by having to go back and forth between the two. Well, I, I do that all the time. I, I've, Often when I have to do substantial edits on an image, I will do them in, in Photoshop. And like you said, it, the, the runway trip between one and the other is very seamless. The only problem that I found is that the return image that you get is usually very heavy. Like it's a non-compressed TIFF file and that takes quite a bit of space, but storage is cheap yeah. these days. So that's really not yeah. a big problem. Not if it's Thunderbolt 3. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So anyway, the, the, the point is that Photoshop is definitely the more capable tool and the advantages that Lightroom brings to the table are the cataloging aspects. That you get your entire photo library arranged by whatever sorting criteria you wanna you wanna select. And that's something Photoshop doesn't do. So the there's a reason why Adobe offers both apps in the Creative Cloud. Uh, sub subscription for photographers because they do play very well together. So I, d I don't think about it in terms of choosing one or the other. I'm comfortable with doing my regular edits in Lightroom and then hopping onto Photoshop every now and then. I think that's a reasonable compromise. Yeah, it seems that way. I mean, not every photo requires the Photoshop level of, uh, of, of editing sophistication. So Yeah. Okay. So I don't know about you guys, but... I 
So when people ask me like, um, what's your home screen? I recently did that sweet setup interview where I shot, showed my home screen of my iPhone and I just use like the default iPhone home screen, the one that comes with every iPhone. And I, I use the default one because I can never ever find like one of my own photos that I like enough to look at every single day all the time. Like I, I'm just not in love with my own work. And I don't know about, uh, I don't know where you guys are at. Like, it's probably a good and a bad thing, right? Like one, it would be a good thing. So I, I'm always constantly trying to improve. Um, but you know, eventually you want to be like satisfied with some images after so and so long. And I've had some in the past, which I was happy with, but, but when I got these presets and applied a couple of them, I finally, like for my own work, I finally went, wow, like, I really like that. And, and that's, um, I, I don't know, like to me, like there's a value in there. Um, you know, I, yeah, you spend money on the preset and, and that's kind of why I wanted to say like, thanks to Rebecca for making these things and, and for, you know, hitting my Twitter feed at one point or another, because it's not just a look that you're looking for. It's not just learning. It's not just a color. Like there's even like a little bit of a rewarding feeling when sometimes it just works. Right. Right. So anyway, I wanted to throw that out there that at the end of the day, there's, there can be a lot of frustration in the whole editing process. And sometimes these things cut down the, the point between, um, you know, they alleviate, <clears throat> excuse me, alleviate the frustration and maybe even make it fun. My home screen is a shark. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is a building. Uh, are they your own shots? But I, I did take the picture of the building. See, so. <laughs> like, I'm so jealous of you guys being able to do that. Like I've, I've always wanted to have one of my own photos that I like enough to actually put on my, you know, on my home screen. And I, Anyway, I've only recently been able to do that. And it's, oh, I, I'm like, yeah, blushing. It's like so much fun to be able to, when you go and shoot a picture, it's like, yes, <laughs> like I can finally say that I'm enjoying this rather than this constant search for something. Yeah, anyway, I'm probably being a little crazy now. This moment brought to you by Sony. <laughs> <laughs>